chapter 10 of John. And I'm going to share with you the seven witnesses testifying of Christ's divinity. The seven witnesses testifying of Christ's divinity. And in order to interpret accurately the moment, the atmosphere, and the timing of this, these statements and this little story that Jesus told right here in John 10 verse 1 through 3, um, we have to take a few facts into consideration. And they are that the, the two chapters earlier, in chapter 8, Jesus and the religious leaders started having an explosive conversation. And this fallout between these two parties, Jesus, His disciples, the Pharisees and the Jews, in chapter 10, it continues, excuse me, starts in chapter 8 and then it continues through chapter 9 into chapter 10. Jesus to set the stage so that you can understand what the atmosphere was like right here when Jesus said these words about truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter in through the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way. He is a thief and a robber. When Jesus said these words, you could really cut the atmosphere with a knife. It was so thick. Why? Because Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, He says, You are of your father the devil. Well, the, the Pharisees responded in verse 48, and you have a demon. And Jesus then says to them in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that was that straw that breaks the camel's back, right? Why is that? Because that's how God introduces Himself. I am. So when Jesus said, before your Abraham was, because they were holding on to the fact that they were from Abraham, He's, he said, I am. I was before Abraham. I was during Abraham. I'm after Abraham. Abraham, would have re Abraham rejoiced when he saw this day, yet you want to stone me. You're not of Abraham. And when he said, I am, that kind of settled the deal for them. It says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at Christ. But Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. And as Jesus escaped the temple grounds, and this is what we talked about last week, or two weeks ago, verse chapter 9, as Jesus escaped the temple grounds, he passed by a man who was born blind. We know. And everyone in that day, of course, believed that if somebody was dealing with disease or sickness, like this man that was born blind, it had to do with either their sins or their parents' sins. And Jesus clarifies that this man's blindness was not caused by his sin or his parents' sin. It was not caused by sin, but it was for the purpose of, of God's glory, and we would see why. Because right there and then, as Jesus is escaping the crowd where the Pharisees were looking for rocks to throw and to stone him with, he slipped away, and as he is walking out the temple, out the courtyard, he finds this blind man, he starts having a conversation with him, he takes, he takes soil, he spits in it, and he turns it into clay, which is a work and therefore according to the Pharisees he just broke the law and because he worked on the Sabbath by turning soil into clay he is therefore a sinner and disqualified he is no longer from God couldn't be from God but Jesus takes that mud he puts it on this man's eyes he tells him to go and wash it off he washes it off and he comes back seeing completely healed 
Well, immediately there's a massive interrogation. They interrogate this young man. Who healed you? How did he heal you? He has to be a sinner because he did it on the Sabbath. And he says, look, I was blind, now I see. They call in his parents. They interrogate his parents. His parents are nervous because they don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. In other words, they didn't want to be excommunicated from Judaism itself and be viewed as, as Gentile pagans. They said, well, he's an adult. Why don't you just ask him again? Well, they call him back in, and they start an argument with this man who has just uh, um, received a miracle of sight. And this man... <laughs> This man tells him, oh, so you wanna, you're asking me all these questions because you want to become his disciple? And they got so angry at him, they excommunicated him from Judaism right there. Jesus seeks this man out. He finds him. He tells him who he is. This man believes in Christ. And right there, Jesus tells the Pharisees who are listening on, he said, the blind will see, but those of you who claim that you see, you will become blind. So in other words, Jesus just walked out of the temple after a major showdown with the religious leaders who claimed he was a liar, he was a sinner, he was a blasphemer, and he was demon-possessed and wanted to stone him. And right here, as things reached fever pitch, Jesus started this teaching about the sheep and the sheep pen and the thieves and the robbers who climb over the walls that refuse to come through the door because they are thieves and they are robbers. In this teaching, I mean, can you imagine? Jesus wasn't holding back. He wasn't saying, okay, folks, let's, let's have everybody's emotions simmer down a little bit before we carry on our teaching. No, right there and then in the middle, the heat of the moment, he starts saying, all right, therefore, can you guys see? Thieves, robbers. As he points to the religious leaders the Pharisees, and all false religions. Because in this teaching, he compares himself to them. In this teaching, he compares himself to them. He says, here I am, the shepherd of the sheep, and there are the thieves, the robbers, the wolves. So in John 10, verse 1, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, Climbs up some other way. He is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. This is me, Jesus says. And then he says this. To him, the doorkeeper opens. So, to contrast the difference between himself and the Pharisees, Jesus uses this story with characters that everybody at the time was very, very well acquainted with. And the characters are as follows, or the, the elements are as follows. There's a sheepfold, a sheepfold. Many translations call it a sheep pen. And there's a doorway in and out of the sheep pen. And there are thieves and robbers who climb over the wall instead of entering through the doorway. And then there is one who enters through the door, and this is the shepherd of the sheep, the true shepherd. And there's a doorkeeper. And this doorkeeper opens the gate for this true shepherd to walk in. To where all the sheep are at. So to explain this, a sheep pen, for those of you that don't know what this looks like, it's an enclosure where sheep could be kept safe during the night. A sheep pen is usually built 
uh, a sheep pen is built with rock. So it's these, this wall of rock, basically circular and with one door, one entrance. And the shepherd would sit inside of that entrance during the night, acting as a doorway. So you can imagine, here's a wall built with rock, circular, there's one entranceway, and the true shepherd, he puts himself in that doorway. Sheep can't run out at night and wander off, and, nothing, and there's no predator that come, can come through without having to come past this shepherd. So the sheep, of course, is Israel at this time, when Jesus was referring to this sheep pen, because in this conversation later, he says, and there are other sheep pens too. And I have to go and get sheep from there also, referring to the Gentiles and the world, all the different nations. But right now, he is talking to Israel, and he's talking about this sheep pen, God's chosen people. The doorway, we will later see, is Jesus himself. The thieves and the robbers, they are the Pharisees and all the other false religious leaders before Jesus, during Jesus, and after Jesus. But then the shepherd, we will find out, is Jesus himself. And then there is this doorkeeper, which is our focus for today. Who is this doorkeeper? This doorkeeper who allows the true shepherd into the sheep pen, into Israel, into God's people to shepherd them. The question we can really ask is who opens and who closes doors here? And I believe the answer is clearly outlined throughout scriptures and that it is God. I want to show you in Genesis 7 verse 16, speaking of Noah, that those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered the ark as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed the door behind him. The Lord closed the door of the ark. He opened it. He brought all the animals in, and then he closed it. Acts 14, verse 7 says, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. God is the one who opens doors, and he's the one who closes doors. Colossians 4, verse 3, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word. We see in Revelation 3, verse 8, he says, I know your deeds, Jesus says. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. God opens doors. God closes doors. So it is clear that it was the Father. Now, when it comes to the concept of, an open, of a doorkeeper, when we get to that concept of doorkeeper, we need to understand what this is really about. It's like going to Costco, actually. How many of you are members at Costco? Yeah? Okay. There's a guy at that door. You know that guy I'm talking about, right? <laughs> He's a doorkeeper. He always waits there for me to show my Costco card, and it's always somewhere I can't find it. And uh, if he's satisfied that my blurry picture looks exactly like me, then he allows me in. He has to see my identity to prove it. He has to validate it, and then he lets me in. The same thing happens when you arrive at the airport security gates. They allow you access through those gates only after verifying your identity. 
The exact same thing is happening right here. Jesus is teaching us how to identify the true shepherd from the false teachers and the false religions. And of course, who is he talking about right here? The Pharisees. The ones he's currently having this complete disagreement with. The ones who are currently wanting to stone him. These are the ones he's referring to. And he's helping us understand that there has to be sufficient identification in order to qualify as the shepherd who can access through those doors. The gatekeeper does not give the false person access. So in plain, plain language, Jesus is teaching us how to identify Him, but also how to identify false teachers and false religions. These things are important. So identifying, verifying, qualifying the authentic shepherd is the Apostle John's aim in writing John chapter 10. Jesus' identity as Messiah his authenticity of His deity is verified through the testimonies of many witnesses. We even have that. That is the way it works in our court system today. If you have enough witnesses testifying of your innocence, chances are the judge will declare you innocent. Everybody needs witnesses to prove or to disprove their position. So I would like for you today to imagine with me that you and I are eyewitnesses to the greatest legal case in history. We're in this big courtroom. Imagine for a moment. And there are the judges sitting on the bench. And the judges are made up of all of the religious leaders of Israel. All those Pharisees with their long robes and their curly locks. They're sitting over there, self-righteous judges, sitting on the bench. And then on the other hand, we have sitting in the box, the Jewish population of the day, acting as the jury. Entire jury is the population of Israel, all fallen human beings. And then in the middle stands the person on trial, and this person on trial is who? Jesus. Because now remember, everybody was accusing him of being a liar, of being a blasphemer, of being demon possessed. And he was saying, This is not true. I am. And they were saying, no, you're not. So Jesus, to be validated, is going to bring forth testimony after testimony after testimony, witness after witness. And so here are eight witnesses testifying of Christ's deity. The first I would like to bring up is the wise men. The wise men who testified Jesus to be God, to be king, worthy to be worshipped. In Matthew 2, verse 1 through 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east 
and have come to worship him. It is completely unacceptable to worship somebody who was not deity. They saw Jesus as deity and divine. So we have the wise men testifying of Jesus' deity. Then number two, we had Pilate testifying that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He refused to change his testimony right at the end. In John 19, verse 19 through 22, it says, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's the sign that hung on the cross, that Pilate put on the cross as Jesus was hanging on it. Verse 20, many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jews were crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, quote, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. He refused to change his final statement about Jesus, Jesus the king of the Jews. So our second witness testified to Christ's kingship is Pilate. The third one is John the Baptist, who testified that Jesus was, in fact, the Lamb of God. Now think about John the Baptist. We had in the Old Testament Moses, and then we had all those prophets, and then we had a 400 year of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there stands this prophet that was prophesied in the Old Testament, this prophet that was going to make a way in the desert. So here's John the Baptist, an actual prophet from God, accepted by Israel as God's man, God's voice, God's prophet. And here he is declaring something about Jesus. In John 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. What did he do? He came to testify about what? The light. He came to be a witness to the light. John 1 verse 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, here's John the Baptist pointing to Jesus testifying that Jesus is the light and that He is the Lamb of God. Again, in John 1 verse 34, He says, And I myself have seen, John says, and have testified that this is the Son of God. So we see our first witness that walked to the bench and testified, wise men. Then we saw Pontius Pilate was one who testified that Jesus is the King of the Jews. We have John the Baptist testifying that Jesus is the light and He is the Lamb of God. Number four, we have Moses and the prophets testifying of Jesus' deity. John 1.45 says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So here... The witnesses are stacking up, testifying of Jesus' deity, His Lordship, His Kingship, His Godship. 
And so, in GodQuestions.com, it quotes, because I looked up the exact amount of prophecies Jesus fulfilled that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Like how many types and shadows and prophecies did Jesus fulfill? Now, different teachers have come up with different amounts. But, uh, and I quote from God Questions, it says, One scholar, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that some are point out and describe or reference to the coming Messiah, all fulfilled by Jesus Himself. Now that has to be divine. I mean, that has to be God. It's impossible for somebody to fulfill that many prophecies. Alfred Erdensheim found uh, 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or His times. Conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300, minimum 300 prophecies in His earthly ministry. 300 prophecies. I mean, think about it. Uh, we in class on Wednesday nights, we went through so many of those prophecies, but even the town that the Messiah was supposed to be born in, Bethlehem, was prophesied that He will come from this town. It was prophesied that He will come from this lineage. He was going to come from David. He was going to come from Judah. Uh, then it prophesies exactly how He was going to die. In the book of Isaiah, there are over 300 details of Jesus' life prophesied a thousand years and two thousand years before Jesus. I mean, think about it. Right in the book of Genesis, it talks about the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. So here we have, fourthly, on the witness stand, Moses and the prophets testifying of Jesus' deity. And then number five, we have the miracles of Christ testifying of His deity. That was the purpose of miracles. John 2 verse 11, it says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed Him. Now, I don't know about you. Have you ever wondered what it means that Jesus performed miracles and then those miracles were called signs. Have you ever wondered why? Why were His miracles called signs? Signs and wonders. Why weren't they just called miracles? Because miracles served as a sign of Jesus' deity. It's a sign of His divinity. It's a sign of His power. It's a sign of His authority. Consider what the signs of each miracle points to. Because each miracle that Jesus performed spoke of His person and points to a divine attribute regarding Christ Himself. Every single thing Jesus did was calculated and orchestrated. Nothing was haphazard. Oh, I feel so bad for this person's deaf ear. Let me heal it. Oh, I feel so bad this person's blind eyes. Let me heal them. Oh, uh, you know what? I love Mary. Her brother's dead. Let me raise him from the dead. That was never what happened. Today, however, um, 
we think that Jesus heals because he has compassion. And we think that that is why. But really, these miracles that have been recorded were all specific, calculated, orchestrated, pointed because they were signs as to his character, as to his nature, and to who he was, his power, his authority, his deity and divinity. Each miracle spoke of him. In John chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, Jesus turns water into wine, and this was a sign of him being the source of life. The source of life. You have water that becomes wine, and the only way to do that is to take that water and water a plant <laughs> and let it grow up and have fruits and then turn into wine. But not Jesus, no. He is the source of life. He will take it as water and turn it into wine. In John 4, verse 46, Jesus heals the official's son, which is a sign that Jesus is God over distance. He is God over distance. He is omnipresent. In John 6, verse 1 through 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000 which is a sign that He is the provider and the sustainer of life. He is the very bread of life. In John 16, verse 15, Jesus walks on the water and 21, He stills the storm, which is a sign that Jesus is God over nature. Jesus is God over the laws of nature. And Jesus is God over the elements. In John 9, verse 1 through 41, Jesus heals the blind man which is the sign that He is the light of the world. In John 11, verse 17 through 45, He raises Lazarus from the dead, which is a sign that Jesus is God over death and that He's sovereign over the grave. Every one of His miracles said something about Him. It was a sign about who He was. So we see that he's, the miracles of Christ stand on as witnesses testifying of His deity. Now we're going through this because these are the things that testify and witness of who He is so He can have the doorkeeper open that door and say, You are the one, come in. You are the true shepherd. These signs are important. Number six. Think about how accurately Jesus predicted His own death and His resurrection. His death and His resurrection became the testimony of His deity. If anybody can predict their death and their resurrection and then fulfill that prediction, you can come into Costco. <laughs> You're the guy. In John 2 verse 19, through 22, Jesus answered them, said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Him fulfilling that prophecy was a testimony to them that He was the one they ought to believe in. 
The seventh witness, the seventh witness is that the Scriptures testify of Christ's deity. The Scriptures testify of Christ's deity. In John 5 verse 39, Jesus comes to the religious leaders. He says, you examine the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is those very Scriptures that testify about me. See, here they are. They have the Scriptures, and they're arguing the Scriptures, and they're trying to use the Scriptures to disqualify Him with. I mean, they're literally saying that He was a sinner because He didn't follow the, the, the Sabbath as the Scriptures told Him to follow. So they were trying to use the Scriptures to disqualify Him. Just like Satan used Scriptures to tempt Christ with. Just like the snake used what God had said to deceive Eve with. You will never find a false teacher not teaching the Bible. Right? You'll never find a false religion not using biblical principles. I mean, think about Scientology. How much Bible do they use? A lot. Think about Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science, but think about them. How much Bible do they use? A lot. And right here later on, and we're not dealing with it today, but Jesus said, when the doorkeeper opens, he comes in, the shepherd comes in, because the doorkeeper goes, all right, you fulfilled Moses, you fulfilled the prophets, you fulfilled the predictions, you fulfilled, uh, um, you know, all of the testimonies, all these witnesses testify, you are the king. John the Baptist, your miracles speak of you. All of these things prove you are the true shepherd. And all those others, they haven't come through the door. They've been jumping over the wall. All these Pharisees and all these false religions. But here comes Jesus, the one that fits the exact profile required by the Old Testament. Why do people believe in Islam, in the Quran? Because the guy that wrote it said that he got it from God. How's he qualified? Well, he said so. <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, you, you got a lot, you, got, you have many religions out there who has a self-proclaimed prophet who has some writings out there and people just follow it. It's Christian science, for one, which is neither Christian nor science, but they use a tremendous amount of Bible. Oprah uses a tremendous amount of Bible. Idea. People, people buy into these things because they seem credible, but they are brought by those who did not come through the gate. Because remember, not only did the gatekeeper open the gate for Jesus because he qualifies to come in and be the true shepherd. Another sign of a true shepherd is that he gives his life for the sheep. The others don't. 
they are only there to take advantage of the sheep. They're gaining off the sheep. I mean, how much money do these people have? How many follow, you know? So here we have to uh, know what we've been taught here is that we have to identify those who are climbing over the wall instead of those who have come through the gate and Jesus himself is our gate. So in John 5, 39, he says, You examine the Scriptures, Pharisees. You examine the Scriptures, Scientology. You examine the Scriptures, Oprah. You examine the Scriptures, Spiritualism. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. Judaism, Pharisees, self-righteousness. And it is those very Scriptures that testify about me. In other words... The Scriptures don't give your life. The Scriptures qualify me so you would recognize who I am, the giver of life. Does it make sense? So we have many people who have come to the witness stand today. We started off with the wise men. Come through Pilate, testified. John the Baptist testified, Moses testified, the prophets testified, every one of Christ's miracles testified about who He was. Jesus Himself testified about His own divinity and He showed through His accurate prediction of His own, his own death and resurrection, became a testimony and a witness of who He really was. We see also now, number seven, that the Scriptures testify of Christ's deity. Now, we can go on and on and on. For instance, all the apostles testified and every single one who account, encountered Jesus testified of Him. The apostles testified to the point of giving up their lives for this truth of His deity. I mean, who's going to die, give up their life if they knew somebody was a fraud? Who better know? Who, who would better know that Jesus was a fraud rather than those who lived closest to Him, the disciples, the apostles. They lived with Him in tents. And they're the ones who gave up their lives over this truth that He is the Messiah. He's no fraud. Everyone Jesus encountered, imagine the woman at the well. She ran and started proclaiming, He is the... Everyone who encountered Jesus ran around saying, He is the Messiah, He is the Christ, the long-awaited one of Israel. But God testified of Christ also. Remember when Jesus came out of the water after being baptized by John? A voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. As a matter of fact, not just God testified of who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit did too. Didn't John say, I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Him like a dove? The Holy Spirit validated who Christ was. Jesus said, I testify on my own behalf. <laughs> so we can go on and on about all those who testified, all those witnesses testifying of His deity, knowing that He is the one that can enter through that gate into the sheep pen. But I have a bonus point for you. I have a bonus point for you before we come to a conclusion. Do you want this bonus one? The demons testified that Jesus was the Son of God. <laughs> Matthew 8, 28. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake, the region of the, of the Gadarenes, 
Two men were possessed by demons, and they met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. Imagine these two men, so possessed, they're living in the mountains amongst the tombs, and nobody could pass by there because these two men were so violent. Verse 29, they began screaming at Jesus when Jesus passed by. Quote, Why are you interfering with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? Through these witnesses, God has spoken and validated His Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to be the long-awaited Messiah. So there's a lot of, there are many views, views when you go to commentaries to figure out, okay, we have the sheep pen, we know what that is. A wall built circular with rock high enough for the sheep to not get out, for predators to not get in. There's one door. That one doorway is guarded by the shepherd himself. He acts as a door. So we have Israel inside of this sheep pen. We have Jesus. He is the actual door, he says later on. But in the first portion of his story, he says that there's a doorkeeper, and this doorkeeper lets him come in because he qualifies to be the Messiah, the sinless Lamb of God. But there are these thieves and these robbers who keep on jumping over the wall, harming the sheep. And as he's saying this, he's saying, he's pointing to who? The Pharisees. Did you know that there's a difference between a thief and a robber? The thief is the one who deceives you, but walks out there with your wallet. You didn't know that he did. He deceived you in in, in getting you to pay for something you're not going to get. The robber is the one who puts a gun to your head and says, hand me your wallet. He's the one that actually robs you and leaves you bleeding on the street while he walks away with your stuff. Just like they murdered the prophets of God. But they don't just murder, they also deceive. And that's why he said, but there are thieves and there are robbers jumping over these walls trying to get to the sheep. And these Pharisees, you are them. Because I am the shepherd, the true shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. You take advantage of them, I save them. And this is where Jesus then says, because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, the true shepherd, have come to give you life. So don't ever think that the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy is Satan. No, it's the false teacher. It's the Pharisee. It's the false religion. And you'll be surprised if if you were to see a graph written up of, of modern evangelicalism and word faith compared to something like, let's say, Scientology. It's tremendous. It's almost the same thing. But we haven't we haven't recognized it. We thought it was we thought it was the gospel. And Jesus is telling us, watch out, that thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal the truth from us and destroy God's work in us. So through these witnesses, God has spoken. God has validated His Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to be the long-awaited Messiah. 
and with these amount of testimonies from all these different witnesses, we conclude that the only reason a person will not accept Jesus to be the Son of God, why somebody wouldn't accept Him to be the true Messiah, why, no, why somebody would not accept Him to be the Lamb of God or the King of Kings, the Christ who came to save, is not because they do not have enough evidence. Have you thought about that? Do we need more evidence that Jesus is in fact the Messiah? The more you look at that, the more you realize it must be very tough to be a Jew today, to argue all of the facts. I mean, how difficult must it be? But not just for the Jew, for, for the Gentile too. Like, which Gentile is going to be able to argue all the facts successfully? They can't. It is not because they do not have enough evidence. It's not because there aren't enough witnesses historically. Because even in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, when you wake up in the morning, you look at the universe, you look at the nature and creation, and it speaks of the glory of God. There's a painting hanging on the wall. What does it tell you? I may not have met a painter, but there must have been a painter. Look at the painting. You drive past a building, you see there's a construction, a building. You go, I did not meet the builder, but that building proves that there must be a builder somewhere. You look at the creation and you go, there must be a creator somewhere. And Romans chapter 1 says, no man has an excuse. Everyone is without excuse. We all know that there is a God, there is a creator. We have enough evidence historically and in every other way that Jesus is the Messiah sent to us from the Father to save us. And it's not because we do not have enough evidence. The Bible is very clear. It's because people love darkness rather than light. The book of John is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke is so historical, but the book of John is so theological. Look at what John says right here, because this is his passion. His passion is to come to the verdict at the end of this trial and to declare Jesus Christ the Son of God. Look at what he says in John 3 verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The reason people don't run to Christ is because they love their sin. No man will ever be without an excuse. There's enough light. But men who reject Christ will be guilty because there was sufficient light. However, they refuse the light. Why? Because they love the darkness. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for showing us these three verses, how Jesus clearly drew the line between the true shepherd and those who are false teachers and false religions. 
that he is the only one who qualifies. He's the only one who has not had to die for his own sins because he's the only one who, has, who is sinless. He's the only one who qualifies, who you qualified through your word, starting with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You have so clearly laid out all these witnesses who testify to the light throughout scriptures, showing us exactly who Jesus is. His miracles showing exactly His nature, declaring Him God over the laws of nature, over the elements, declaring Him God over death, sovereign over the grave. And today we are humbled that we are in Christ. Today we are humbled, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd. Just the way you searched out that man you healed, you searched us out. Because that is what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd comes for the sheep, no matter how lost the sheep is. The shepherd actually saves the sheep. He doesn't make salvation possible. He saves that sheep. And how blessed we are that you, God, have violated our free will. You broke through and you saved us even while we hated you and resented you. Just like a father against the will of his five-year-old child grabs her out of the street away from the oncoming traffic. You did the same for us. And today... We are, we are humbled by your goodness because that is your goodness and your mercy toward us. Thank you, Father God, for your mercy. Draw us closer to you today. Open our eyes so that we may see the true shepherd. Amen. 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 Did you get something out of the word today? Amen.